Hey everyone, this is Josh McPherson, lead pastor of Grace City Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime Christian or just starting to ask questions about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I hope this message challenges you to think hard and moves you to respond in such a way that results in more freedom and purpose in your life. Enjoy the message. Amen. Hey, well, I'm Adam, and one of the pastors here. Really, really excited to be with you this morning. And would you do me a favor? Help me welcome the folks down at Slant County Regional Justice Center tuning in. Hey, guys, we're so glad that you're in church today, connecting with Pastor Chris and his team down there. And so when you get out, come find Grace City Church. Come find Big Chris, and we'll help you get plugged in and connected. And so, so glad that you are watching there. Of those tuning in online, good to have you with us. We're going to the book of Acts. We're in, in our series in Acts, going to chapter 21. If you got a Bible, and I hope that you do, you can open that up, find chapter 21 in the book of Acts, or pull it out on your phone. And we're diving in. The, uh, our, our series in Acts is called How to Be a Jesus-Filled Church. How to Be a Jesus-Filled Church. And so the title of my sermon this morning just as we keep the main things, the main things as we walk through this series, because really the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do through the power of his Holy Spirit in the lives of his followers, the church. And so oftentimes we get emphasis put on in the book of Acts, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which is good and right, yes and amen, because God has poured out his Holy Spirit after Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven after giving the commission, the great commission to his disciples, go and proclaim the gospel in all nations. First, though, you got to wait in Jerusalem for power from on high. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out and the church was born. We sang about it this morning in one of the songs, if you heard it. The flame was lit and the church was born. Amen? How many know the church of Jesus Christ is doing well? Come on. Yes. Don't believe everything you see with your eyes in the culture and everything you see happening in, in, in hard and difficult and challenging times because Jesus promised and is still building his church. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it, meaning Jesus says, I'm on the offense through my people. And, I'm, I'm, I, and he poured out his Holy Spirit to empower the church in that mission. And so the, 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 the title of my sermon this morning is a Jesus-filled church in a negative world. I'm continuing to use these categories that Pastor Josh put on the table for us last week. If you missed that sermon, you really should go online and check it out. Uh, I think the title of that sermon was Figure It Out Faster. Figure It Out Faster. And, and the reality is times are changing. And, and there's been some really helpful uh, research done. A uh, man named Aaron Wren, who's kind of put together some dates. Pre-1994 was kind of positive world, meaning in general, culture viewed Christianity and going to church and even evangelical Christians as a positive thing. And so that it was viewed positively in culture. Then 1994 to 2014, it was kind of seen more neutral. It didn't really gain you anything. Didn't really set you back. Didn't really get you ahead. Things were shifting in journalism and media and entertainment and academia. And then around 2014, and again, there's some reasons why he picks these certain dates. The dates are a little, again, not, not precise per se, but uh, there, were, there were events that took place, one of them, Obergefell, in 2014, where there was a shift and culture became clearly negative, meaning there's a greater social cost to claiming to follow Jesus if you adhere to the clear and plain teaching of Jesus on things like sexuality, on things like gender, on things like marriage, 
so forth and so on. It now there's an increasing social cost at work in the political arena, in the entertainment industry, in media, in academia, in journalism, all these pockets of culture. If you hold to the plain, clear teaching of God's design and truth, that's now viewed negatively. How many of you are going, oh man, that's so helpful. Yeah, I realize we're living in an increasingly negative world. And so as we'll see, as we continue on in our, in our study in Acts, Acts, the book of Acts really is a playbook or a roadmap for life and mission in a negative world. So the, the, uh, the, we're going we're to jump into Acts chapter 21, and, and it's just right here in the text. We're going to look at it together, how to be a Jesus-filled church in a negative world, and we've got five marks of a Jesus-filled church in a negative world. So let's jump in Acts chapter 21 and verse 1. We'll read, read a section here, and then i got five marks for us that we'll, we'll, we'll pull out, and then we'll go baptize some folks. It's going to be great. Verse one, after we had torn ourselves away from them, this is Luke who's writing the book of Acts, and they're just now leaving Ephesus, because remember Paul was giving his final word to the Ephesian elders. We spent a couple of weeks looking at Acts chapter 20, and it was a tearful goodbye, because Paul knows this is the last time I'm gonna talk to you. This is my farewell speech, and he's, he's warning them, and, he, and he's uh, instructing them about ways to be on guard against false teaching and wolves that would come in after he leaves, but he knows I'm going on to Jerusalem, and he knows he's been warned by the Holy Spirit that difficulty and persecution and, and imprisonment awaits as he moves toward Jerusalem. So it's, it's a, a, a relationally or emotionally kind of painful Goodbye, because Paul's heading into the fray of the epicenter of an increasingly negative world as he heads down towards Jerusalem. So him and his traveling companions, including Luke, set out on their journey. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. I thought it said Pateras when I was reading. I got so excited. It's Patera. It's in the Middle East. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. Verse 2. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now, this goes back to earlier in Acts, where the, where the apostles appointed seven to help care for the needs of this exploding and growing church in Jerusalem. You remember, Stephen was one of the seven, the first martyr of the church. Of course, the apostle Paul, Saul at the time, was giving his approval, overseeing the execution of Stephen, and Philip was one of the seven. These were men known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they were given delegated authority to care for needs and help assist in the church. Philip was an, is an amazing guy. He's an evangelist. We see him show up in Acts in a few places. And I love, look at, look at uh, 
One awesome testimony here of Philip, he's one of the seven, verse nine, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So good job, dad, leading your home to kids and girls that love Jesus, amen? Now just prophesy them some husbands, you know what I'm saying? Get some husbands in the mix here. Pray them in, pray them in, dad, right? I, I, I think of Philip sometimes like maybe, maybe like a, uh, no offense here, but maybe like a homeschool family, got these daughters, they know Jesus, the Bible really well, but they're a little socially different maybe, and uh, they're looking for some husbands still. That's an ins- that's a whole Christian inside joke. But anyway, just kidding. Pray men some husbands, Philip. All right. I digress. Philip, way to go, dude. Seriously, man. Verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said... The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, notice Luke uses the inclusive we, right? Even even Paul's companions at that point like, bro, this guy's got a word from the Lord. He's got a prophecy about what's going to happen to you. We, we, we We should pivot. We should, we, we, we should pivot. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I love this next line. Look at Paul. I am ready. Somebody say ready. 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 I'm ready. I am ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. I love that. So even Luke was like, hey, Paul, we shouldn't go. And Paul's like, I'm going. But Paul, Paul, we shouldn't go. He says, I'm going. He said, all right, I'm with you. You're not going alone. Let's go. Lord's will be done. All right, we're, 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 we're rolling. Some of the disciples, verse 16, from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. I love that. One of the early disciples. Ooh, this guy's got stories. He was one of the early disciples. Wouldn't that be something? Spend an evening at the home, one of the early disciples. Hearing the stories. Verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. I'm going to pause right there. We're, we're, we're going to read more in a moment, but I want to, I want to make our, give us our first couple of points here as we walk through it. Mark number one, Mark number one of a Jesus-filled church. Jesus-filled church is a network of disciples of Jesus. It's a network of disciples of Jesus. Notice there was no less than six times in those 17 verses that we just read. It said after we had torn ourselves away from them, they'd been with the Ephesian elders, and you see the relational connection and, 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 and the relationship there. Finding the disciples in verse 4, there we stayed with them seven days. Verse 7, we continued on our voyage from Tyre, landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Verse 8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. 
Verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us, brought us to the home of Nason where we were to stay. And then verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. Friends, the Jesus-filled church is a network of disciples of Jesus. We see that the gospel had spread, and as people had come to meet, love, and follow Jesus, their lives were interconnected, and they were helping each other out. Increasingly, as we move forward in, in hostile culture, how many know, come on, we need each other? We're not built or made to do this thing alone. Look at the network of relationships and the network of pockets of followers of Jesus that were supporting each other, encouraging one another, building each other up, offering up their homes. Hey, come stay with me. Come on, how many know when you're when you find the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, you got a place to stay. You got a soft bed and a warm meal waiting for you. That's the Jesus-filled church. Right? Look, look, look at the, look at the uh, descriptions of the, of the believers in and around the region as Paul is making his way on his journey back to Jerusalem. The Jesus-filled church is a network of disciples of Jesus. And look, words that we could use to describe this church, this regional, expanding, growing church. This is why we do city groups this is, this is why we build relationships with like-minded, courageous, Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving pastors and churches as we're able. Because Listen, the church was hospitable, gracious, generous, courageous. Like, think about it. They're, they're welcoming. We've seen elsewhere in Acts where just to be associated with Paul and those who are leading the charge preaching the good news of Jesus, dealing with the riots and the mobs and the upheaval that results from pointing out the cultural lies and cultural idols. We see that even to be associated, let alone to be an accomplice. Come on, how many know these disciples were courageous? We're with you. Part of the underground railroad of places where you, oh, would you go there? Yeah, yeah, look up Nason. You can stay there. He's a good dude. Oh, yeah, yeah, find this guy when you go to this town. Look them up. Go here, go there. Oh, yeah, no, he, he's one of the early disciples. One of the early disciples? I'll be sure to stop by and spend an evening with him. Courageous, sensitive to, and dependent on the Spirit. We'll come back to this in a moment, but notice how sensitive and dependent upon the Holy Spirit they were. Prayerful. Sincerely loving and warm. The, 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 the wives and the children, they're going out and they're kneeling down on the beach before they get on the ship, man. They're praying over them. Word has got to them, right? It's not like we are today with like text messages and a quick email and a quick phone call. Hey, did you hear the news? Yeah, you hear Paul's going, you hear Paul's doing? Yeah, 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 boom, boom, boom. No, like word got out, you know, some way, somehow. Paul needs a place to stay. And Luke, they're coming, they're on the way through. Oh, yeah. There were a network of disciples, true, faithful, courageous, hospitable, committed, all in. My house is yours. My car is yours. My life is yours. Come on, what can we do to support one another? How many know? That's the kind of church we got to be now and into the future. That's the Jesus-filled church. That's what it looks like in practice, in action. 
And in fact, it's part of the way that we as followers of Jesus in a negative world wage war. Say, what do you mean? How Christians wage war. This is actually something I I got cut out of an earlier sermon. You see all all through Acts, this kind of hit me even from chapter 19 and chapter 20. How do Christians wage war with the words? Not literal war, spiritual war, but the reality is it's it's a spiritual battle. A battle is not against flesh flesh and blood. Principalities, powers, and how do we wage war? We wage war with words. That is the truth of the gospel. Paul himself said, I will testify. My race is to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. We use words. We speak truth. We set forth the truth plainly. We speak of what we've seen and heard and experienced of the way Jesus has changed our lives. And I will tell you what he's done for me. If you got a minute, no one can take away my testimony. And one of the way we, we, one of the ways we wage war is with words. We refuse to be silent and not speak about Jesus or about what he's done in our lives. Now, I'm not saying be an idiot or a jerk or obnoxious. In the spirit, be courageous, be bold, be clear. Paul says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. We wage war with words. We wage war with our actions. Not physical war, but good deeds. And we serve. Though they accuse you of doing evil, let them see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. One of the ways that we wage war is we're not just mere talk. We don't just believe things. We have a living faith. We have an active faith. You show me your faith by what you say. I'll show you my faith by what I do and how I live and the sacrifices I make. And the people I serve and the people I love and the, the vulnerable and the weak and the hurting and the poor that we come alongside and we lift up and we bear with and we assist and we enter in. That's a Jesus-filled church. When in an increasing negative world, as, as those who hold to the clear and plain teaching of the word of God are increasingly maligned, smeared, lied about. We continue to live such good lives among the pagans, Peter writes, that though they accuse us of doing evil, they see the good deeds. We wage war by living lives of purity, lives of integrity, lives of sincere, faith-motivated, love-motivated, hope-motivated action. And third, relationships. This is how Christians wage war. Words, actions, relationships. Who likes a ac- good acronym? There you go. There's one for you. We wage war with words, actions, and relationships. You say, what do you mean? I'm telling you, friends, listen. One of the most distinguishing things about you If you are in Christ and you're living your life according to the principles of God's word and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the distinction shows up in your relationships. And we have life-giving relationships, fruit-bearing relationships, and it is our marriages and our families and our relationships with one another. This is the point where it ties into 
a network of disciples. It's Jesus said, they, the world around you, will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. There's something about our relationships that is a way in which we distinguish what it is to be the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of peace and righteousness and hope and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the air that we breathe. That is the environments that we cultivate. Those are the relationships that we build. Those are the homes of peace that we invite you to come and see and find rest for your weary soul. Come, you traveler, stay with me and meet Jesus in my home. Because the, a Jesus-filled church is a, a network, a life-giving network of disciples, of followers of Jesus who are waging war by their words, their actions, and their relationships. Amen. Amen. Number two, the Jesus-filled church is a spirit-led community. The Jesus-filled church is a spirit-led community. I, I, I love this. Oh, man, I want you to, you got to see this in your Bible. Look at verse four of Acts 21. They found the disciples there in Tyre, and they stayed with them seven days. And then notice it says, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You see that? Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now look over, let's get a peek back into chapter 20 and verse 22. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, and now, verse 22, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship, hardships are facing me. So through the Spirit, the disciples entire say, don't go. And through the Spirit, Paul says, I'm compelled to go. So which is it? Is the Spirit confused? Is the Spirit in conflict with himself? Welcome to New Testament spiritual gifts and life in the Spirit. And friends, the static is always on our end. And we do our best to discern where and how the Spirit is. is, is so I find no conflict in this, but what I find is, is amazing, right? Because when it comes to issues of being led by the Spirit, being sensitive to the Spirit, come on, if we're honest here, if you've been around the church and around Christian communities at all, how many of you have, have ever wondered, what do we do with prompting urges, words, uh, you know, uh, uh, leading uh, prophecies when people claim to have a word for the Lord for you. How do you handle that? What do you do with that? Well, we get, in, we get it instructed. First of all, notice, there's no question all through this that the Jesus-filled church is a spirit-led church. Come on, we, we, we need all that Jesus got for us in a negative world. You got it? We need it. 
There's a reason you gave it to the church, and it's clear from Scripture in 1 Corinthians that he gave all the gifts of the Spirit until he returns. Because you're going to be at war and you're going to be in fog until then. And so in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, 13, 12, which is incredible. It's the chapter that unpacks love is kind and love is where it's right in the middle of the most extensive New Testament teaching on spiritual gifts, which is a huge topic, super fun topic. We don't have time to dive into it extensively this morning. We'll, we'll touch on a few things here, but right in the midst of chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, which are all about the gifts of the Spirit, especially some of the more controversial ones. You get issues of prophecy and tongues and some of that charismatic stuff. What do we do with that? How should we, how does that get applied and lived out in the church? Paul spends two whole chapters teaching about it. In the midst of two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit, this is a beautiful chapter that's emphasizing the fruit of the Spirit, which must govern the operation of the gifts. Now stay with me here. So in that middle part, he says, now we see but a poor reflection. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. What are we talking about? We, we prophesy in part. It's not perfect. In other words, Old Testament prophecy is not the same thing as New Testament prophecy. They're not the same. So when Agabus shows up and says, the Holy Spirit says, the owner of this belt is going to be bound in this way and does all this, right? It's not the same thing as Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord, write it down and put it in the Bible. Now, Agabus has shown up earlier in Acts, and he accurately predicted a famine that was to come. New Testament prophet Agabus. Question, in his prophecy to Paul, in this section where he takes Paul's belt and binds his hands and feet, says in the same way, this will be bound. Is he accurate? We'll we'll wait to find out. We'll get there in a minute. We're going to read it. We're going to read it. Here's the point. Each person stands or falls with his own master. Each one is responsible for the Lord Jesus and his conscience, whether or not that has my name on it, whether that, that comes from the Lord. So I believe the disciples entire were sincerely, out of love for Paul, born of the Holy Spirit, doing their best to discern and fueled and motivated their intention out of love for the Spirit was Paul, don't go. That's why Paul said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Because because. Paul said, if you press this too far, we're going to have an issue because we don't press the urgings and promptings of the Spirit to dictate God's will in another person's life. That's how you know you've gone too far. We set it forth humbly. You get to weigh it, discern whether or not that's for you or not. And if I feel that I've uh, sincerely expressed to you what I believe God put on my heart for you, and I do so in a humble way, then from there on, it's yours. And at the end of the day, if we can't persuade one another this way or that, it's like, hey, we surrender. The Lord's will be done. And that's not a cop-out. That's good theology. That's good New Testament practice. The Lord's will be done. And that's why Luke can say, bro, I don't think you should go. He's like, I think I should go. I'm with you. Let's go. How many like those kind of friends? I'm with you heart and soul. 
And we're going to talk about what, discern together what the Spirit is saying and what the Spirit is doing. Why? Because we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. So, listen, there are ditches around this issue of those who, who avoid, mock, or deny the real-time work of the Spirit to guide and to give needed intel in difficult situations. And friends, I'm telling you, the Jesus-filled church needs to be sensitive to and dependent upon, real-time, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And yet we don't get weird or arrogant about it. Unless you think that I'm only talking about groups and camps of Christians who are out there somewhere, both of these, and I'll call them immaturities, foolishness, are in this room. Meaning, we need not only to continue to figure it out faster with, with, with regard to the person and work of the Holy Spirit, but as we study the Word of God to know the principles of God and the character of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, the more we know the Word, the more we can weigh and discern and seek wise counsel and submit it to others and be humble in our approach and discern together the guiding and leading of what we believe is the work of the Spirit so we need to grow in our spiritual maturity, and we also need to grow in our emotional stability. Where, where we're not, listen carefully now, where we're not lucky rabbit's foot Christians. We're not ink blot Christians. Oh no, I woke up and I heard a bird, and I went outside and I saw a bird, and then I looked at the cloud and it looked like a bird. And I looked at my watch, and it was 7.23, and then I remembered I was reading Matthew 7.23, and then I remembered a conversation we had on July 23rd last year. Do you remember that? And so I have a word for your life. <laughs> Is that how we follow Jesus? <laughs> but friends, and listen, I'm pressing gently, lovingly, pastorally, that's how some of you try to follow Jesus. And I'm saying there's a more mature way to approach discerning the Spirit. Because I'm not saying the Spirit can't and doesn't prompt and urge and guide and lead. He does, and we need to learn more about these things. And so we say, okay, what's the deal here? So how do we deal with promptings, impressions, urges, leading of the Spirit? Because, again, this is a massive topic. We could go on further. I need to keep rolling. I'm going to give you this one verse. First Thessalonians 5, 19 and 21. Do not put out the Spirit's fire or do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold on to the good. So we weigh it. We test it. Listen, people come and say, like, God's given me a word for Pastor Josh. God's given me a word for Grace City Church. And this, I say, awesome. Would love to hear it. Write it down. Send it to us. We'll weigh it. We'll pray over it. We'll discern whether or not it has our name on it, and we'll move forward. And we got chapter and verse to handle things that way in 1 Corinthians 14. And if you think they didn't do what we told them to do, or they didn't listen, or I didn't get to do, but you know, come and say this, this, that. It's like, yeah, read your Bible. Sorry, am I being a little, I'm being a little, I feel like I'm being a little aggressive. Oh, man, I love you guys. I got to die. Okay, there may be a time or two we've dealt with this. I'm just saying. <laughs> test it. The Bible tells us what to do. We test it. We weigh it. 
And at the end of the day, we're urging Paul. We can't convince him. What's the play? All right. The Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. And so we don't despise prophecies. We don't treat them with contempt. And we are not lucky rabbit's foot ink blot Christians. There's more stability, maturity, clarity that we can have and walk in as a Jesus-filled church in a negative world. And friend, I'm just calling you up, calling us up. We got to figure it out faster because you need the spirit for the road ahead. Number three, the Jesus-filled church is led by courageous contenders. The Jesus-filled church is led by courageous contenders. Paul says, very clear, don't, don't, you, don't you love Paul? I am ready. I'm ready. Not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And you know what's crazy about this, friends, in many ways? Paul is just following right along in the footsteps of his Savior, who set his face like a flint for where? Jerusalem. And the dark clouds grew. And Jesus knew what awaited him there. And he said, I'm ready. And I'm going, and I'm going to drink the cup of wrath so that these sons and daughters can be saved. Jesus knew he was going to the cross, and he would try to tell his disciples, it's necessary that the Son of Man be handed over, be killed, be crucified. And here we find Paul following the steps of his Savior, saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, and all I, I don't know the specifics, but all I know is the Holy Spirit warns me what awaits me there, but I'm ready, if need be, according to the Lord's will, not only to be bound but to die for the name of Jesus. Friends, look at, isn't it, I find it, wow, Paul would not be dissuaded. Paul would, Paul would not be dissuaded. And friends, in a negative world, the church, the Jesus-filled church, is led by courageous contenders who are willing to stand up and set forth the truth plainly. No matter what, is going to come against, and they step into that reality. Because, friends, listen, and this is not true only for pastors and leaders, but it brings right, the community of disciples along. We're with you. That's right. We'll stand as well. Because, friends, listen, we are not of those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back, but of those who believe and are saved. We are not playing games to Believe in the Lord Jesus, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to surrender your life to Jesus is to say, I will go anywhere, anytime, tell anyone, 
at any cost, whatever you tell me to say, wherever you tell me to go, whenever you tell me to go, my life is yours. It is no longer my own. I have been bought with a price. And if you tell me to say this, I'm going to say that. If you tell me to go there, I'm going to go there and let the chips fall. Friends, the Jesus-filled church is led by courageous contenders who don't stop speaking the name and truth of Jesus. Let's look at the text. Jump back in. We, 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 we. Verse 17. It says, when we arrived at Jerusalem. So now they've got to Jerusalem. The brothers received us warmly. Verse 18. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul, the church-planting missionary, has been off all through Asia Minor and all around the region, preaching the gospel, escaping the hands of angry sinners, slipping out of cities, and, and, and gathering with the disciples, and he's made his way back to Jerusalem, and now he's reporting what God's been doing amongst the Gentiles and the crazy and amazing, wonderful things of how people are meeting Jesus and getting saved. When, verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, now they're saying, we'll, we'll tell you about what's going on here in Jerusalem. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Verse 21, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Customs. rut row. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. This is, by the way, New Testament denominationalism about to happen right here. And I don't mean that in a positive. Okay, anyway, um, verse 23. So what do we tell? What do we tell? Uh, no, so do, huh, this is great, watch this. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses. <laughs> you're going to do this, and you're going to pay for it. It's good, it's good. You're the missionary, you come here, you pay for it. That'd be great. No, there's reason, though. There's reason. Ah, this is going to be strategic. You'll, you'll, because, because, was it true that Paul was telling people not to follow Moses and, you know, trashing the Jews? Well, some, because we, Paul was clarifying the gospel. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus Jewish tradition and custom. It's not Jesus plus this tradition and this way. We do it this way. You got to wear these clothes. You got to greet this way. You got to shake hands this way. No, you got to put your shoes over there. You can't have them on. No, you got to take them off. No, you got to leave them on. No, you can't have tattoos. No, you got to have tattoos. All kinds of. So he says, take these men, join in the purification rites, and, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know. Then everybody will know that there is no truth in these reports about you. 
but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Y'all remember Acts chapter 15? You can go back and listen to it. The Jerusalem Council sent that letter. When it, when it comes to Gentiles coming to faith, they don't want to put any stumbling block in their way that isn't necessary to the central core message of the gospel. So that's what we're dealing with, the Jewish traditions and systems. And as the gospel was going to other cultures, other races, other peoples, what has to go and what doesn't? What's central to salvation and what isn't? Verse 26, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself. He goes along with it. Watch this. Paul, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. You say, what's going on here? Friends, listen. The Jesus-filled church contextualizes traditions, not truth. Contextualizes traditions, not truth. Notice these were issues of custom and tradition. And remember, Paul had already been navigating these kinds of things all along the way because Timothy, he had circumcised, but Titus, he didn't. And we'd like, imagine their conversation. Wait, like, you had to, wait, you didn't have to? Like, Paul, teacher, I got a question. How come I had to and he didn't have to? There were issues related to context because Paul was not wanting to put any unnecessary stumbling block. But Paul was very clear, never contextualized or changed the essence or core of the message. He didn't wobble or waver on the truth of the gospel, and he never allowed it to be perverted, added to, or reduced. So in our contextualization of culture, just understand what we contextualize is actually traditions and trimmings. I mean, come on, listen, be, I'm going to be honest. We got a lot of, we got a lot of Presbyterian in here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we got, we got recovering Lutherans, recovering Catholics. Got, that's one thing I love. Why? Because come on, you know, just give me straight Jesus. Just give me the truth. There's certain traditions and customs and things that do this way and do this way and do that way and do that way. We can let that go for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Amen. You can clap for that. You can clap for that. There's unity, unity around the core. Traditions are what we contextualize, not truth. Manners, not message. Dialect, not doctrine. We contend for the truth. We contextualize traditions and trimmings. So yeah, I might give an object lesson or an example of I'm in Wenatchee. Let's talk about apples. Durr. Makes sense, Right? But the point that I'm making, if I use an illustration to connect to my audience, never obscures or confuses the truth or the message. It's actually used to clarify it and drive it home. So we proclaim the cross and we pivot for customs. We never confuse the categories. Paul removed unnecessary stumbling blocks, but always kept the stumbling block of Christ crucified and never ceased to call people to repent and call people to believe and obey the truth of the gospel. 
That never changes, regardless of the changing winds of culture surrounding. And if it offends in one place, and if it's warmly received in another, those are the results that belong to God. We don't write it, we just deliver it faithfully and let the chips fall. And where it brings offense, it brings offense. And in increasingly in a negative world, there's more offense. And preachers are tempted to contextualize the message or the truth rather than the manners or the, tra- the traditions or the customs or the trimmings. And come on, we, we need courageous contenders and we need to not confuse the categories of what we're contextualizing and what we're not. All right, let's jump back in the text. Verse, pick up the story, verse 27. And I'll give you, I'll give you my last point. Here we go. Number five, the Jesus-filled church wades right in to a negative world. The Jesus-filled church wades right in to a negative world. Verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place, that being the temple. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. False. Look at the next verse. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. But he didn't. Facts, y'all. Facts. Negative world doesn't care about facts. Here we go. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, I don't know what their response time was in Jerusalem for Roman officers, but I'm guessing Paul took a pretty good beating for a bit. Verse 33, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Ring any bells? Then he asked who he was. I love this. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Right? You got a riot. You got a mob going on. The cops show up. Grab him. Cuff him. Grab him. Cuff him. Throw him over there. Then we'll find out what's going on. We'll find out who he is and what he'd done. Verse 34, some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, He asked the commander, may I say something to you? 
And the commander says, you speak Greek? This is great. Y'all going to love this. This is amazing. Look at this. You speak Greek, he replied? Wait, uh, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul's like, uh, nope. <laughs> Paul answered, uh, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. He's talking about Rome. That comes into play later. Please let me speak to the people. Paul's like, let me add up, let me add. He just took a beating and he's like, I got some things to say. Let me, let, me, let me set the record straight. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he leaned forward and he said to them, and that's where we're going to stop our sermon, and you can come back next week to hear what happened. Okay? And I'm serious. So I'm not done with my sermon, but He's like, oh, I'm going to go read Acts 22. Yeah, go for it. So here, here, here's the deal for us. Listen, the Jesus-filled church wades right in to a negative world, right? They, they, they seized Paul. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. But notice they had made assumptions that Paul had taken a Greek into the temple when he actually hadn't. And everyone's all this chaos and this noise and this riot, and he's being maligned and he's being yelled at and he's being shouted down and he's being hated. And the commander can't even decipher amidst this, I can't even get at the truth. Is this a good guy or a bad guy? And the world, the neg a negative world, all negative world does is say, La, 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 bad, 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 terrorist. Listen, the negative world thrives on misinformation, false information, negative assumptions, believes the worst, assumes guilt, smears, lies, half reports, totally made up reports. Aren't you the Egyptian who led a revolt of terrorists out the... Uh, no. But what does Paul do? He wades right in to a negative world. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm ready to be bound, let alone die for the name of Jesus there. You see, in an increasingly, friends, in a negative world, it's the court of public opinion. It's baseless accusations. It's to be accused is to lose. It's the presumption of guilt. It's believe the worst. It's assume the negative. It's biased against. The whole city was aroused. At one point, initially, though, it's like, the whole city, and it's like, really? It, was, it started out like a small vocal bunch. And then it spread, and then like mobs and riots do, People just check it out, and like we saw a few weeks back, right, they don't even know why they were there. They don't even know what the really issues are. What does the guy really believe? What does he really say? Who is he? What's he really like? How does he really live? What's his character? What's his family like? Don't care, don't care, don't care. Bad, 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 bad. That's how it works in a negative world. By the way, side note, the commander comes up. Notice Paul was bound with two chains. Did Agabus get it right? Sort of. He said, the Holy Spirit says the owner of this belt will be bound 
with two chains. And he said the Jews would bind him, but he got it wrong. The Romans bound him. He said, oh, wait, 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 details, details. New Testament prophecy isn't the same as Old Testament prophecy. It doesn't have to be 100% accurate to be from the Lord. Agabus got it right enough, don't you think? And yet it was actually the Romans who bound him. If we're going to press for details, we want to press at the end. It was the Romans who bound him, not the Jews. Side note, well, that's just to close the loop from New Testament spiritual gifts and how they function different from Old Testament in the area of prophecy. By the way, notice Philip's four daughters prophesied. Come on, ladies. Right? Come on, women are filled with the Holy Spirit, gifted by and with the Holy Spirit, and have powerful areas and functions and responsibilities to minister in truth and in godliness. And there are only few limitations in the New Testament with regard to male and female roles in the home and in the church. Men are to be heads of their households, heads of their wives. Paul is very clear that in Ephesians 5. And it is uh, heads in the church in terms of male elders as the governing those who weigh and discern the prophecies, but men and women can function and operate in spirit-filled ministry in the New Testament church. Side note. That's a side note. It's for free. Okay. So, and there's more, lots more to unpack with that. Now, some of you are going, bro, how are, are, how are you going to transition this to baptisms in a moment? <laughs> to which I say, it's not as easy as I'm going to make it look, but we'll get... <laughs> I kid. So, how do we respond? The band can come out. The negative world thrives on misinformation, riots, mobs, uproars, smears, lies, false assumptions. The, the, the Roman commander reveals they, they don't even know the basic facts. They don't even know that... Paul's not an Egyptian. He's a Jew. They don't even know where he's from. Don't even know. It's like, what are we doing here? And you can't decipher the truth amidst the noise. And friends, that's exactly how it happens, increasingly so, in a negative world. The facts get blurry sometimes around the situations, and Christians find themselves caught in the clash. And that's why many are tempted to just avoid... What inevitably is going to become, you know, controversial issues. But friends, a Jesus-filled church wades right in to a negative world with the words of the gospel, actions filled and motivated by the fruit of the Spirit, the love of Jesus, good deeds and serving and laying their lives down and relationships that bear the fruit of the kingdom of God. And so, friends, just like Paul and the disciples with him, we humbly, steadily follow Jesus into the fray. The truth, humility, clarity, courage, unwavering, not shouted down or sidelined or 
forced into cowardice and fear. They wade right in because, friends, here's the deal. Paul never forgot his own story. And in Acts 22, he tells his story as he'll do throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And when Ananias is praying for him, see, here's the thing. Why can Paul wade right in to a negative world? Where does that courage come from? Where does that boldness, where does that resolve come from? Because Paul never stopped remembering who he was and where he was when the Lord Jesus found him. And he remembers the light and he remembers getting knocked off his horse and he remembers the voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? Brother, I'm gonna use you now. You are now my instrument to declare my name. Wherever I send you, you go. And Paul said, you can take my life, but you can't take away from me what I've seen and heard from the person of Jesus who called my name. And Ananias said to him, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul waited in because he never forgot what Jesus had done for him. And there is one direction for the church in a negative world. There's one direction for a Jesus-filled church in a negative world, and it's forward. Because Paul said, I'm not shrinking back, and I'm not going back. We're moving forward. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, it overcame him, the accuser, the dragon, the war that spilled out of heaven and spilled over onto earth. And now that accuser of the brethren day and night that accuses you, you're worthless, you're a failure, you're no good. Aren't you the Egyptian? You're a liar. You're no good. All that. Paul said, no, the word of God tells us, John said, they overcame him, overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Paul said, I'm ready. I'm ready not only to be bound, but I'm ready, if need be, to die for the name of Jesus. You're not going to stop me from talking about Jesus. You can't get me to sign any employee contract that says I won't talk about my Savior and what he's done for me. What I've seen and what I've heard, you can't take from me. There's one direction for a church in a negative world, and it's forward. And we got, we got 21 witnesses who say, I'm not going back. I'm not shrinking back. I know who Jesus is and what he did for me, and I'm going forward. I'm willing to publicly declare that I am a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and I belong to him, and I repent of my sins, place my faith in Jesus, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, in relationship with the body of Christ, I will follow him all the days of my life. Wherever he says go, I will go. Whatever he says say, I will say. Whatever he says do, I will do. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So we're going we're gonna to stand. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to prepare because you know how we do this at Grace City. We're going to sing and worship and celebrate. And if you're one of those ones this morning in this service, we've got eight folks signed up to be baptized. You can start to make your way to the side over here. I'm going to pray for us. 
And then we're going to celebrate new life in Jesus. So, Father, thank you for the people in this room. We give you praise. Father, would you fill your church with your Holy Spirit, that we would be a Jesus-filled church in these days, that we would be faithful. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for the testimonies now, Lord, of the lives that you have changed and are changing. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to open more eyes, open more hearts, and change more lives as we faithfully testify to your grace in our lives and move forward in these days. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this message today. If you did, there's a couple things I'd love for you to do. First, like and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. That way, the most recent message from Grace City will always be waiting for you at the top of your feed. Secondly, if this ministry has encouraged you and you'd like to help us reach more folks, you can do so by giving a gift to our ministry so we can continue making these resources available for free. Just go to gracecitychurch.com give. Thanks for listening. God bless.